Father, this evening we just come to you, Father, the third, last Wednesday of this third month. We just want to thank you, Lord, for keeping us. Thank you, Lord, for your hand over our lives. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Father. Now, this our Lord, even as we are in your house, we pray, Lord, you would continue to teach us. Teach us your ways. Show us your paths. When your servant prayed this prayer thousands of years ago, you promised him, my presence shall go with thee and I will give you rest. I pray, Father, that we will continue to walk in your presence, continue to experience your rest in the midst of everything that we go through, Father. Speak to us this evening. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're expecting a Passover or a Good Friday sermon, <laughs> you're not getting it. We'll just continue with the study of the Word of God, and uh, He will continue to teach us. Okay, so a couple of minutes days back, we saw the story about the the incident about the Canaanite woman meeting Jesus, and we saw what separates. Ordinary, great faith from ordinary faith and we saw that she was not offended. Okay. It's not a small thing. It's a huge thing in the Bible. If God has to approve of our faith and say that great is your faith, be sure we are not offended. Deal with because offense is a huge thing in the, in the Bible, in life. Once Offense sets in. Unless you deal with, like with a surgeon's scalpel, no, that sharp little knife, unless you, unless you deal with it, ultimately it can destroy us. So, when God talks about offense in the Bible, take it very, very seriously because you see it through history. Of mankind one day in God's presence and then in the Bible you will see it comes in so many ways and how people are tripped by it. Many, many people in the Bible who are offended. If you look at the first time God speaks outside the garden, scripture does not say God spoke to Abel. Scripture says God looked at Abel, looked at his offering and he received his offering. But it doesn't say he spoke to Abel. But the scripture says he spoke to Cain. Spoke to Cain. Uh, we don't know whether he spoke to Abel. The Bible is silent about it. But we definitely know who he spoke to Cain. And I believe he speaks to Cain. And Cain is very offended. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. If you do well, will it not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door and it desires, its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. We don't know what he thought in his mind because God does not say that. But the usual response, if somebody were to tell you, you did not do well. What you did was not right. The usual response that come, what do you mean? I can't do anything right? Only you can do anything, something right? God is showing him a solution for the problem, but 
we take offense at this. Remember the third thing, the three C's? The third thing is taking correction. And you will see he's offended and he won't take correction. He's very, very offended. What do you mean? Only my brother can do right. I can't do right. We get offended. And offense will take Cain down because he will not receive correction. You will see through the Bible different, different people who are offended. Naomi was offended. Gideon was offended. A couple of towns, when he asked for help, they didn't help him. And he said, wait, I will, I will, when I come back in victory, I will teach you a lesson. These are his own people. And he's offended and he remembers and he takes the elders, 70 elders, he gets a man and gets him to write down the name of the 70 elders of the town. When he comes back in victory, he calls those 70 elders, must have been older men and has them whipped with thorns. Because he's offended because they didn't listen to him. King Saul was offended. He's very offended. He's not looking at the victory and he should be the most excited man saying, Thank you, Lord, you saved my face. Thank you, Lord, we are out of trouble. Instead, he was offended because of a song. Because they attributed in a song a few more men to David than to him. He was offended. That's how we get offended. You know, in classrooms, in schools, in colleges, in homes, everywhere in churches. If I were to tell Peter, you led worship very well. What does Abel will think? What does he think? I don't lead well. Now that was never meant, that was never intended. Okay? Because we have four, five worship leaders. If I commend one, will the others be offended? Or if you had to say, oh, your cooking was great. He never commended my cooking. No, we get offended. Understand, the Bible is full of this and once offense set in. Ahitophel was offended. Once offense sets in, we saw on Sunday the word of God passes by. Or you pass the word by. So we saw on Sunday in John chapter 6 and verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Then, 666, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him. Now, one of the reasons why God actually tells Israel, the church and everybody is that you're forever learning, but you never know. Is the reason people come into the house of God with offense. And the word of God just passes them by. Just passes them by. The word never becomes life. It never becomes by. Let's say you got an infection in your stomach and you have loose motions. So it doesn't matter how much you eat. It just goes away unless the effect, infection is handled. You might eat the best nutritious meal. It's of no avail. It just goes away. You might sit under the greatest teacher ever known. The very son of God, the very word that became flesh, anointed with spirit without measure, but it just passes you by because you are offended. That's why Jesus says, guard your heart against offense because 
The word will pass you by and you will pass the word by. Like we saw on Sunday, the message of the cross is incredibly offensive to the carnal man, to the self. Okay, so remember all these messages. Don't forget. We saw last Wednesday the three touches of Jesus. But the blind man at Bethsaida. First touch is the touch of conviction. Second touch is the touch of conversion. And the third touch is the touch of correction. And the third touch is what we run away from. That's why Jesus said salvation is a very, very difficult process. Don't let anybody make you think it is easy. The entire process of salvation is a very, very, very few will allow in history, when we stand before God, will allow the work of salvation to be completed in their life. That's a beginning. That doesn't mean you are not saved. But the completion of that work, I believe, very few in terms of people who are saved. I kind of believe in that 144,000 of billions who will be in earth. It will be like 144,000 maybe who allowed the completion of salvation because it's a very difficult work. That's what Jesus said, said, straight is the gate, narrow or hard is the way to life. Very few will find it. Why? Because the battle we are struggling with, because the message of the cross is offensive. Peter, Apostle Peter put it this way. For time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Okay? When God brings judgment in the house of God, when he tries to judge us, he doesn't bring a tank or a rifle, he brings a cross. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous ones is scarcely saved, hardly saved, where will be the ungodly and the sinner appear? Okay, this is talking about allowing the completion of the work of salvation. If the righteous one who is saved, declared righteous, is hardly saved at the end. What is going to happen to the ungodly and the sinner? That's why we gather for this study of the word of God. Okay, We make this journey with Jesus so that he continues to teach us. So let's get back with Jesus. Back on the road. Okay, Last Sunday, last Wednesday, we were with him at Bethsaida. And after healing the man at Bethsaida, so when you study scripture, listen to his instructions very, very carefully. Take it as very personal. Don't, we call it Bible study, but don't look at it as a Bible study, though it is a Bible study, look at it as a very personal conversation where every instruction is for me. And he's trying to speak. And I and you may fight with it, but we look and we are smart, saying that nobody has fought with him and won, so I give in. I may not like it, but I give in. Don't, don't, don't throw tantrums with God, it doesn't work. Okay. So he told him very clearly, took him by hand, touched him, what do you see? And then he's got an instruction. Now your sight is recovered, you can see clearly. If you want to continue walking in clear sight, this one thing you need to do. In Mark chapter 8, then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town, nor tell anyone in the town. God is telling his people, 
But now that you are saved, then you are able to see the kingdom of God. If you want to continue seeing, there has to be a separation in your life. Don't go back to the place from where I rescued you. Don't go back to the place from where I rescued you. Don't go back to it. He always has something to tell people. The man at the pool at Bethsheta, he had an instruction. You haven't walked for 38 years. Do you see your life? In retrospect, 38 years sat there in one place. You haven't gone anywhere. You are exactly where you've been sitting for years. And so many people, their lives, they may be doing a lot of things. But if you actually look into the core of their lives, they haven't moved at all. They're exactly where they were 10 years back, 20 years back, or like Israel, 38 years back. When God sets him free, he's got one thing to tell him. Tells him, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. He says, don't lose your walk. You are starting to move again in the right direction now. To the other man he said, you are starting to see. You didn't see all these years, you are starting to see. One thing I have to tell you if you want to continue seeing, that is, don't go back. Don't go back to from where I rescued you. To this man he says, don't go back to the things which you used to do. It's not that you will be crippled. Something worse can happen. So don't miss instructions what Jesus says to the woman who is caught in adultery. Remember that woman? To her he says, raise him up so no one but the woman. He said, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What's she telling her? She says, I'm not looking at the quantum or the depth or the, the nature of your sin. All I'm telling you is, I'm releasing you. Don't sin again if you do not want to walk in condemnation again. Three things. To three people he says, you want to see? You want to walk? You want to walk without condemnation? Follow my instructions. Because this is our major issue. We don't see We are not able to walk with God and we constantly walk under condemnation. When scripture says, therefore there is no condemnation, yet we feel the weight of condemnation because we do not follow instructions. So that's from Bethsheda. Okay, so finishing with the blind man who sees now from Bethsheda, Jesus and his disciples are now moving. And they are moving to Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them a question. First he asked them, what do people say that I am? Jeremiah, Elijah, all these things they gave answer. Then he says, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? That's the next one. He said, but who do you say that I am? Okay, This is after the incident with the man at Bethsheda, their movie. He asked them this question, who do you say that I am? He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. Okay? So stay close. Listen carefully. They are traveling as a group. Large group. Traveling as a large group. If you read the context carefully, you will see He turned 
and ask them if you were part of a large group and you're sitting at still walking at the back you would have never heard this question and never heard the question you missed out one of the most important questions jesus asked listen carefully when you come into the house of god remember whether you came on your own or whether you were brought listen carefully don't miss the questions he asks what do people say oh now he is asking them a personal question who do you say that i am and peter answered you are the christ so whenever you go to the house of god pick a place where you can hear clearly keep your minds on christ jesus don't get distracted who do you say that i am what is saying i'm not interested in what the people in the world say about me who do you say jesus is i'm not interested about other people's opinion who do you say jesus is you see many people through the gospels came to jesus with various needs so to different people he was a different persons in the church also many people come to christ for different reasons on a regular sunday people come at different times and sometimes who come the last are the first to meet me because they have come for a specific reason they have come to meet jesus the problem solver so pastor will you pray over me jesus the healer jesus okay they come to meet different jesus and jesus meets people at their point of need that does not mean they know who jesus is That doesn't mean they don't. So Jesus asked a question. You all have been coming. Some of you have been coming for ten years. After ten years, who do you say Jesus is? Peter said, "You are the Christ, the Anointed One of God." In the Book of Acts, you will see when the word cut through, there was a cry that rose from thousands of mouths. thousands of mouths because they heard who he was in acts chapter 2 verse 36 let all the house of israel know assuredly that god has made this jesus whom you crucified both lord and savior who is this jesus and they heard and they cried they wail what what will we do in romans 10 and verse 9 and 10 if you confess with your mouth the lord jesus and believe in your heart that god has raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation so there is a heart and a mouth with the mouth what do you confess the lordship of jesus christ what do you confess with your mouth the lordship of jesus not jesus christ very easy to confess jesus the lordship of jesus christ what do you believe in your heart he is alive it's not dead he's alive so joseph jacob for 22 years lived such a miserable life of depression in canaan because he thought joseph was dead 
Then when his sons come back after the third trip and says, Dad, we need to tell you something. Joseph is alive. He couldn't believe it. When he finally believed it, scripture says he arose because he knew Jesus is alive. Scripture is saying, do you believe Jesus is Lord? Do you believe that he's risen from the dead? He's alive. That you're dealing with a living person. Do we believe that the living person is the Lord Jesus Christ? The fact Jesus is Lord is more than a confession. It's more than a confession. That's why he's asking these questions. He's asking these questions not because he doesn't know the answers, to know whether we know the answers. He knows. Scripture says the Lord in Deuteronomy 8, it says he led them into the wilderness, caused them to hunger and fed them with manna so that he could humble them so that they could know what was in their heart. Until trouble comes, tribulation comes, wilderness comes, famine comes, our job loss comes, no money comes, we don't really know who we are. Till then it will say, hallelujah, hallelujah. When real tight situations come, we will really know whether Jesus is Lord or not. So in Mark chapter 8, the same situation we will see. He began to teach them. Who do you think? Peter said, Jesus, you are the Christ. He said, Okay, your confession is fantastic. Now let me teach you about this Christ. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. He spoke this word openly. And I will say he spoke this word plainly. Very plainly. See, We don't speak this word openly. We do. But many people try to say it's very offensive. If you tell all these things, people will run away. Let's try to make the gospel very comfortable. But he did not make it comfortable. As soon as the confession came, you are the Christ. He said, okay, your confession is right. Now let me tell you about this Christ. What is going to happen to him? He spoke this word openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. When he spoke about the cross. Message of the cross is offensive. Offensive. Peter rebuked his Lord. And we blame Peter, but we don't realize in our hearts also, we also rebuke God. Rebuke God. When the cross comes in, we rebuke, we get upset. That's why John the Baptist also said, calls his disciples and tells them, go and ask him, are you the one to come or should we look for somebody else? Why? Because the cross came into his life. Till then it was fine. Crowds were coming, fire and thunder, brimstone, preaching, afraid of nobody. Then you are arrested, put in the prison, cross has come. And the cross was offensive. And you are questioning it. Verse 33 says, but when he had turned around and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Now Peter is rebuking him, he is rebuking Peter. Saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Three things he said there. Okay, that message is not on that, okay? Three things. Get behind me, Satan. So, who is the one who makes the message of the cross offensive to us? It is Satan. He doesn't like that message. Doesn't he? So he addresses both Peter and the spirit that is working in him now from behind. 
he says first he addresses the spirit what is that get behind me second he tells peter you are mindful about the things of man you're thinking carnally thinking carnally you're thinking the way a fallen man thinks third you don't have the mind the things of god you don't have you don't have the things of god in our life get behind me satan you don't have the things of god in your mind then he calls the crowd and the disciples together he brings them back together then he had called the people to himself with his disciples also so you see through it all lot of stuff is happening he the crowd is following him he asked the disciples a question the disciples asked answer he is asking the disciples what do all this crowd say i am so they tell him this is what the crowd says then he asked what do you say this thing then there's the drama that happens with peter and him then he calls everybody and then tells whoever desires to come after me only those who desires to come after me okay so this portion will make no sense will have no impact for anybody who does not want to go after jesus that's the first thing if i want to go after jesus If I don't want to go after Jesus, I'm very contented where I am. Thank you, Lord. Bless me. Bless my cats, my dogs, my family, my children. And when I die, Lord, give me a slot in heaven, but leave me alone. God says, fine. This won't make any sense to you. But anyone who wants to come after me, anyone who wants to come after me, so you have three choices you will have to make. Last time, three things. What was it? Conviction. conversion and correction today three choices he said anybody who wants to come after me first you will have to deny yourself second you will have to pick up your cross and third you will have to follow me you will have to follow me you know peter put himself ahead and he got rebuked he put himself ahead of the plans of god self centered that's what god is talking about he says if anybody wants to follow me you cannot be self centered every morning when we rise up to a new day or if you are night shift people every night when you wake up for your shift whichever time you work every believer has to make these three choices every day till the last day of your life will i deny myself today will i pick up my cross today will i follow him today you see the shadow of the self and the shadow of the cross you look you open the bible from chapter 2 onwards chapter 3 onwards actually you will see the shadow following the self and the cross the battle between this it's a unending battle between the self and the cross and depending upon who will win who will win genesis has how many chapters 50 very good 50 chapters creation of adam to the death of joseph if you go by calculation 2370 years how many years 2370 years starting with adam ending with 
Joseph. 2370, but only seven people managed to carry the cross. 2370 years. Starting with Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Seven people. 2370 years. Battle between the self and the cross. The cross won only in the life of seven people. It doesn't mean the others were not saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this battle between the self and the cross. Just one book alone, we are, I'm talking as an example. One book records 2,370 years of human history. Only seven people won that battle. And some of them actually struggled towards the end. So we have 39 books in the Old Testament. One man God chooses called Abraham. One family is chosen called Jacob's family. And out of that one family, God will have a nation called Israel. And that 39 books is about this man, his family, and this nation. A nation. You know the history? History is the self kept on winning. They battled against the cross. They did not allow the cross to work in them. They fought the cross, fought the cross, fought the cross. And Israel kept on losing. That some good kings here and there, sparks of revival, but it did not work. God's warning over and over and over and over and over. They kept on ignoring. Finally, Israel goes into captivity. You know, the primary reason why God allows Israel to go into captivity and be taken as slaves four times, Nebuchadnezzar, three or four times, he almost took entire Judah into Babylon. Emptied the land. You know why? Primary reason was idolatry. 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 And we do not realize Idolatry is a manifestation of the self. Self and idolatry are like conjoined twins. The cross is the only weapon. There's no other weapon. The only weapon that can destroy both self and idolatry is the cross. Israel went into captivity and literally wept in captivity. This is the weeping described in Psalm 137. Yeah? By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, there we wept when we remembered Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Literally, if you look at Israel, they wept every idol out of their life. You will never see idols back in Israel after that. It took 70 years of severe judgment and captivity to break every physical idol in their lives. No more idolatry in Israel's life. Destroyed. Because it took such a severe hand of God to destroy self and idolatry in their lives. But because physical idols have gone away, that doesn't mean idols have gone away. They have just gone undercover. Idols are very sneaky. Very sneaky. That's why John Calvin said, what did he say? The human heart is an idol factory. It's an idol factory. 
An idol is when I put something in the center of my life. My life and my priorities where only God belongs. I think I ruffled a few feathers when I said romantic alliances are bondage. Because you actually tend to worship the other person and end up serving the other person. Jacob was called to serve God. He ended up serving Laban. Why? Because he loved Rachel. That's why almost 90, I haven't done, nobody can do a study on it. Probably 90 plus songs is the worship of the other. Right? It's not a worship of God. It is a worship of man, the lover, or the woman. It's a worship. And it is slavery. It is bondage. We don't deal with the idols first. We deal with self first. What did Jesus say? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. And follow me. We don't deal with idols. Idols is like easy to see. It is outside of you. And it is visible. But we have to deal with the self first. The Pharisees had no physical idols. When Jesus came on earth. Pharisees had no idols at all. No physical idols at all. But they put themselves first. Therefore their hearts were full of hidden idols. If you look into Pharisee's house, my gosh, you will never find a house like that. Absolutely clean. No idols. But they put themselves first. If you don't deal with self first, idols will slowly keep coming, crawling inside. Jesus gives practical lessons. And one of the practical lessons about this, he gives in the house of a Pharisee. This is a very nice person. He used to visit Pharisees also. Anybody's house, they call him, he goes. Okay. In the house of the Pharisee, he has one practical lesson. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places. In the house of a Pharisee, he's saying, look, Jesus, you know, he goes to the temple, he looks at people, how they are putting their offering. You visit in their house, he will sit and see how they are treating him. You visit him, invite him to another house, he will watch, he will go early and sit there and see how all the others are looking for seats. So we didn't realize whether you come late or whether you come early, Jesus looks. He watches every move of ours because every move of ours is a Reflection of ourself. So he was watching people coming to choose the best places. It's a big dinner. Table is over there. Everybody is trying to sit at the head of the table. Close to the host. Jesus has something to say. When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. Put yourself first. Don't put yourself first. It's an attitude. It's an attitude. He says it's not nice. No. When it is lunchtime, you know exactly by now you know eight o'clock is lunch. Eight fifty-eight, you are out because you want to stand first in the line. So many things people do. So many things. You know? 
In Kerala, when we were growing up, the buses used to be full. And these dudes would come. I also did it many times. Okay, You just come and you put your kerchief through. Then you wait. Everybody is rushing, pushing. People all look at the kerchief and say, somebody has booked it. You never push. But you put yourself first, though you got in last. Verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. It's a very difficult thing to do with this consistently. Put yourself in the lowest place. Because self always needs and demands attention. That is the nature of the fallen man. Why? Fallen man's nature comes from the fallen man's father, the devil. The saved man's nature has to come from his father, God. So there are two fathers only. Only two fathers. One is God, the other is devil. The nature of the devil, he doesn't want the lowest place. He wants the highest place. So God says, know this and constantly fight that nature with that cross. In Isaiah 14, scripture says, for you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. This is the devil. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. There are many, many seraphims and cherubims and archangels. Many stars are there. And I'm looking at them and says, you know what? I'm going to be number one here. Not Michael, not Gabriel. I, Lucifer, will be number one. I'm going to exalt myself above all the other archangels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest side of the north. Not only that, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. That's where this comes from. That's why Jesus is saying, fight it, constantly fight it. Because there is this old man in you, which is born of the devil. There is this new man in you, which is born of God. And you always have to wake up each day and say, you know what? I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to deny myself. Because self craves for attention. Men crave for attention. Women crave for attention. Children crave for attention. Employees crave for attention. Employers, everybody craves for attention. That's the problem. The question is, practical way. How do you answer? How do you tackle practically this craving for attention? How do I put Something ahead of myself. That's a word in the Bible for that and word in life. There's a word for that. If you understand the spiritual meaning of it, that word is called duty. We have the saying, put duty before self. Finally, after all is crazy, inquiries and misery, the last words of Solomon is this. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. To fear God and obey God, whatever he has said, if we take it as our duty, as our duty, he says, you can overcome yourself as your duty. Duty puts Something ahead of yourself. Something ahead. It's my duty. I need to do it. There is no no to it. And one of the most powerful
powerful things God will give to Israel. Like every, all the unmarried people, please show your hands. Oh, most of them are unmarried. So you are thinking, 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 thinking of getting married, dreaming of building a house and getting this man to marry, this woman to marry, all these pictures you have in your mind. Okay? But let's replay and take you all back 3000 years. Now you are not in 2011, you are living before Christ in a Jewish system. And there is Peter. Peter has been planning his wedding. Peter has been preparing to get married. And he has this girl in mind and he's crazy about this girl, everything. And then one thing happens. Peter's brother dies. His elder brother dies. Peter's elder brother is married. They have no children. You know what the law was? Next one. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife. He says, I don't care what your feelings are in this, what you want for yourself. Duty comes before self. Your brother's line should not go cut. You need to put him ahead of yourself. So to the Jew, when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, it meant many things. You put him ahead of yourself. And perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It's your duty. You cannot escape duty. No, Lord, what are you telling? I've been planning, dreaming. We have even planned out a wedding and the event manager has got it all. I have everything invited. God says, duty about self. Duty about self. The only thing you can to overcome this self is to see the whole word of God as my duty. That's what Solomon is saying. Fear God, obey his commandments, that is the whole duty of man. Otherwise, you know what? We will stop when we are not praised. We will stop when we are not encouraged. We will stop when nobody gives us a commendation. But to do your duty, you don't need any of these things. You don't need anything. 21st century world, the Facebook, WhatsApp world, fathers want to be praised, mothers want to be praised, pastors want to be praised, employees, children, everybody lives not on food, on praise. What I have done for my children is not even sacrifice. It is duty. The minute I think has sacrifice, I have put myself ahead. The minute I think it has duty, I expect nothing from you. What I did to you is because that's what is demanded of me. You have to give nothing back to me. It's my duty. As parents, we have to believe whatever we have done for our children was my duty. It was not sacrifice. There may be sacrifice and duty, but that's irrelevant. The minute you put sacrifice first, then we are demanding and expecting something back. That's what scripture says. Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago and died for us when we were sinners, when we were powerless, when we were enemies of God, because that was his duty to his father. Not my will, but thy will be done. 
The greatest battle was fought the previous night in the garden of Gethsemane between the will of Jesus the man and the will of God in his life and the will of God won over him. He says, not my will but your will be done. He says, I will not put myself ahead. I will deny myself and the next day he will literally pick up his cross and walk. Otherwise, we will never ever win this battle with duty, with self. We'll never. Whatever we do, it's just our duty. When we have forgotten what our duty is, self becomes king. Self becomes king. Jesus had an incredible uh, example to give in Luke 17. I want to read the whole parable. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come and eat once and sit down to eat? Just imagine you are a lord, master, and you've got slaves. And one of the servants was either working in the field or he was taking care of sheep. And when he comes back after a whole day's work, does the matter say, oh, you worked so hard, come and sit down with me and eat? No, he doesn't say that. Even if the master was watching TV the whole day and doing nothing, he will still tell him, what will he tell him? Prepare something for my supper. You go to the kitchen. Prepare. Why? You belong to you belong to me, you're my slave, you belong to me. Gird yourself, serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? And after all that he says, thank you, thank you, thank you. Does he say that? Yeah, I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all things which you are commanded, say we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. God owes me nothing. I owe God everything. Everything. We don't get that clear. We will fight ourselves all the days of our life. And self will rule. Self will rule. That's the first thing he says over there. Duty. Understand. Duty. Deny yourself. Problem is we have forgotten what duty is. For a self-centered person, it is all about me, what I feel, what I think, what I want. The disciple thinks about what does Jesus want. So Paul, when he's writing to his disciple, Timothy, gives him an incredible example from one part of humanity where that is very clear. It's only in India, if you look at it, it's one place where that is very clear. Nobody has to be tell him what. What is there in the army? In the army, no soldier has to be told what is your duty. Never, whatever you are in the army. I've seen drivers, one call, they got the uniform and gone. Gone like that. And I worked with the army, we used to sit in the mess, and the mess was made into a service place, put a white cloth, the Javans are all sitting over there, and many of them are drivers sitting over there, they're weeping, they're crying, they're worshipping, everything. Suddenly, one reason, pastor, praise the Lord, uniform, gone. Duty is about everything. This Sunday at 7 o'clock, nothing. Gone. See you next Sunday. Gone. They understood that. That's what Paul will say in Timothy. He will say, no one engaged in warfare and entangles him with the affairs of his life. Leave that. That he may please him who enlisted him as soldiers. His only desire is, I have to please my CEO, my commanding officer. I have a duty. 
I have enlisted. My only thing is I have to do my duty. My duty is to see that my officer is pleased. That's our duty. That's why scripture says without faith it is impossible to please God. So it is our duty that we hear and we walk by faith. Hear and walk by faith. It is our duty. And there when you walk by faith you can never put yourself first. In genuine walk of faith, you always have to put God first and never yourself. It is impossible to put self first. You have to put God first. First thing is, deny yourself. Mark 8 and verse 34, second thing. Take up your neighbor's cross. No, he didn't say that. Take up your cross. It's an action word. Take up your cross. Okay, deny yourself, it's an action word. Pick up your cross, it's an action word. And that cross is very, very powerful. Not the cross that hangs around your neck, not that one. The real cross, the spiritual cross is a powerful weapon that destroys all idols. They understood. We don't. They understood. We don't. We don't understand what is pick up your cross. They understood very well what he meant. I will show you an example. John 19. And he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. In the Roman age, the only one who carried a cross is a man who has been condemned to die. Only he. If I had been condemned to die by the Roman authorities, next day is my execution. I carry my cross through the streets so that the whole public will say, this man is condemned to death, he's carrying his cross. He's dead. You say in English like the title of that movie, he was a dead man walking. At the end of his walk, they knew he's going to die the most horrible, miserable death. To pick up your cross was a death sentence. It is not a nice Gold one with a few jewels and hanging like bishops hanging big ones. You know about the first council of Nicene when Constantine became the emperor and suddenly whole Roman empire has become Christian because the emperor has become Christian and there were so many issues going on. So the emperor after years and years and years of persecution, the church was underground, persecuted, killed everything. Now the emperor is the king. Uh, has become Christian, so he calls all the bishops and the leaders of the churches from the Roman Empire for a meeting called the Nicene Creed, where it was, Nicaea. When they come, here comes the Roman Emperor in all his glory, dressed in pomp and this thing, and there are the bishops coming out of underground and sitting around him. Some are lame, some have one eye, some have no hand, some have no, nobody's walking around in robes and with crosses like today. They had borne their cross for years. And in the process, they had lost parts of their body, beaten up, cut, eyes ghosted out, and they are now coming and sitting in the presence of the emperor. So they knew what it meant to pick up your cross. It was a death to self. Anyone in that time, if they were told, pick up your cross, they understood what it meant. We struggle to mean what it is. Dead man walking. That is what Paul was talking about in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But Christ, he says, I am a dead man walking. Who is Paul? Dead man walking. Who is living? Christ lives in me. Every day he is saying, I deny myself I pick up my cross, 
and I follow him. When I follow him, I no longer live. He lives in me. Walk of faith means he lives in me. There were three men hanging on that cross. Remember? On that day, 2000 years ago, three men hanging on the cross. One thief, we know, repents and comes into the kingdom. Think about that thief for a minute. Okay? Think about that thief hanging on that cross. His body from head to toe is wrapped in pain. He's hanging over there. Necks all pierced, hanging over there. We will think illustration in their times. Imagine a Roman centurion comes there in his incredible chariot drawn by white horses. Is he going to covet that horse? incredibly pretty Jewish girl looks at him and winks at him. Is he going to lust after her? And there is a Sadducee standing there in his purple robe. He's going to wish, I wish I was dressed like him. Another man opens up his dabba and he said, fantastic dabba and he's eating in front of him. Is he going to hunger? It's a dead man hanging there. At that point, when you have picked up your cross, scripture says in Luke 23 verse 42, in 42, scripture says, he had eyes and ears only for Jesus. He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. He has forgotten everybody there. He's aware of nobody. He's aware of the other thief and says, shut up. Okay, we deserve this. He doesn't deserve it. He's suddenly aware of everything. His sinfulness, his holiness, that I am, we are right to be condemned. He doesn't care who is there. He is not aware of any other reality except the reality of the one who is hanging in the middle and he says, Lord, remember me. That's what the cross does. The cross does its work in us. We are not aware of anybody else. We are aware only of Jesus and what he wants us to do in our lives. He had only eyes for Jesus. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Another thief was hanging on the cross. He was hanging on, the other thief was hanging on the cross. But the cross was not doing any work in him. That's what scripture is talking about. Two men are hanging on the cross. One is hanging on the cross. The other is hanging on the cross. In one, he's not only hanging on the cross. The cross is doing a deep work in him. Cuts off everything and he has eyes only to see Jesus. And he sees him. And he sees what nobody standing in the crowd is able to see. That's what is interesting. His mother, who had incredible revelations in the beginning of your life, doesn't see. His disciples are all standing far away, including John, all who has seen the Mount of Transfiguration, does not see. Mary Magdalene, who followed faithfully, does not see. Nobody sees, but he sees. Or hanging on the cross, he sees the kingdom. And he sees the king. His eyes are opened. Because he allowed not to just hang on the cross, he allowed the cross to work in him. And his eyes are opened. He sees the king and the kingdom and he says, remember me. Jesus said, definitely you're with me in paradise today. It's an incredible conversation that is taking place on the crosses. 
While on the other hand, another man is hanging on the cross. He misses the work of the cross completely. Understand how the kingdom of God works. Why did he say, pick up your cross and follow me? Why? Because only the cross can open our eyes. Otherwise, we will see everything through eyes of self. You didn't do this for me. He ignored me. She spoke like this. Her tone was different today. I don't know what she was. Why? Because there's no cross in our life. No cross. Therefore, we only see self. When the cross has done its work, we see Christ. We see the kingdom. And we realize these things don't matter. The whole duty of man is to obey God. Whatever he tells it is fine. My duty is to obey him. When the cross doesn't see, even when we do our greatest, most noble work, we don't see Christ, we don't see our neighbor, we only see ourselves. That's why Jesus said, you know, you do your acts of righteousness to be seen, not unrighteousness. Everybody does the acts of unrighteousness secretly. But to do their acts of righteousness publicly because they want their self to be recognized. Jesus said, no. Pick up your cross. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. And then the third instruction he gives. He says, and don't leave it at that. He says, don't deny yourself and pick up your cross and hang it over there. He says, no, follow me. There are three steps to this completion. He said, Follow me. Keep following me. Follow means to walk in his footsteps. Follow means to go wherever he takes you. But step three, follow me, is only possible if step one and two is done. If people who have no step one and step two ask, okay, where will you send me? First tell me, then I will decide. You see, when step one and step two is not there, they don't follow. They go in the name of God where they want to go. And it doesn't matter how great a man it is. It can be as incredibly great as Elijah, one of the greatest in the Old Testament. He runs from where God wanted him to be. And God is kind to him, gives him two angelic ministrations, eats Strong for 40 days, comes to Mount Horeb, and when he, God speaks to him, what's the first thing God tells him? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? You ran. You didn't follow me. You followed yourself. You followed yourself. That's why under the juniper tree you said, I am no better than my fathers. I want to die. In so many ways, depression and suicide is the ultimate manifestation of the self, unless it is demonic. I am not going to hang, have my way. You are not going to have your way either in my life. You are not going. I am not going to give you the joy of my salvation. I am going to tie my rope, Ahitophel, and I am going to kill myself. I am not going to give you the your joy. I will have my joy in my death. I will choose my own way out. That's what he's saying. I don't want to live. I want to die. Because you put yourself ahead. God says it doesn't work that way. You have to deny yourself. You have to pick up your cross and you have to follow me. And wherever I lead you, we should be willing to go. Should be willing to go. And that's because he says, I have shown you a way. The father told me, go to the cross. And I said, yes, I struggled. But I said, no, not my will. Your will be done. That is our struggle. 
and our struggle. That's why he said the way, the road to life is not easy. It's very, 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 very difficult. One of the most influential people in God's eyes. Now, if you, as, as we close, as we close, 10 minutes, as we close. One of the most influential people in the Bible, in, before God, was a man called Daniel. He's, he's a cut above all the, almost all the others in the Bible. And God himself gives his testimony when God is so angry with, with, with Israel. And he talks about the power of intercession. We talk about the power of the righteous prayer of, uh, the prayer, a fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. God says, yeah, 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 all that is true. But that doesn't mean you can make me do anything. I'm giving an example. He says in Ezekiel, he says, no. Son of man, when I land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of breads and famine on it, cut off of man and beast from it. Even if these three men. Who are these? Noah, Daniel, Job. Together we have to stand in unity and intercede. I am not going to hear them. What does he say? One of the oldest persons in the Bible, oldest book in the Bible, Job, Noah, and the youngest in these three, Daniel. He says, even if these three incredibly righteous men were to stand together, agree in unity, bind, release, intercessory prayer, fervent prayer, he says, you know, once I have made up my mind, it is done. They cannot change my mind. So, don't put your trust also in your prayer. Put your trust in the mercy of God. Because there are a lot of people who will say that you can change the heart of God through prayer and all. That is only if he had already willed it that way. You cannot bend God's arm. Okay, that's what he says. And he's an incredibly righteous man. Incredibly righteous man, Daniel. If you go through the Bible, keep this is connected with following him. Okay, if you go through the Bible, one of the beauties about the word of God is it is the word of God. It never lies. It never whitewashes the characters in the Bible. You see them with all their weaknesses, their blemishes, with their warts, everything. But if you read the entire account of different, different people in the Bible, there seems to be only one man in the old covenant of whom no blemish is recorded. Doesn't mean he was sinless, but he seems to be blameless in the entire Old Testament account. There seems to be only one man about whom no blemish is written. That man is Daniel. Nothing negative is written about him. Even if you talk about Joseph, you can bring a couple of things out. Like, okay, he, why did he marry the Egyptian priest's daughter? Right? He, my, his father did not marry, his grandfather did not marry, his great grandfather did not marry, why did he marry an Egyptian priest daughter? You can ask. Okay? But let's leave that aside. And there are a couple of other questions also you can ask. Like you will say Uttama Purusha, Rama, this thing and all, finally you will come and ask, you are Uttama Purusha, why did you put the throne ahead of your wife? She came through fire, right? So she's pure, right? So why did you put power ahead of your wife? You can't say you are the only one ruled because 13 years Dasarath has ruled fantastically. So there's a question of successor is also not there. So there are fallacies, blemishes in all this Uttam Purush in the Bible also. Shown exactly as it is. But this young man, and if you look at his record, unbelievable, a young teenager 
forcibly taken from his own family and land he was subjected to the most powerful indoctrination programming possible your eating your dressing your language your studies everything is to make a babylonian out of you 24/7 by the time we have finished with you in 3 years you will no longer be a hebrew you will be a babylonian to be used in the babylonian court that was the training surrounded by temptation to pursue personal gain and prosperity when the sons of judah were being all taken we don't know what was the advice parents gave many of the parents must have said you know babylonians have this this system if you are very smart and if you are very very smart you can really rise up the ranks okay Anyway, we have lost that taking you. Be good boys. Listen to whatever these Babylonians say. Study well, and one day you can become a collector in the Babylonian court. Any must have given advice like that. Can rise. Not Daniel. Surrounded by temptation to pursue personal gain or prosperity, surrounded by evil and enemies, yet he never failed God, and God never failed him. simply because he made one resolute decision in the beginning he purposed in his heart to follow jesus one decision he made very early as a young boy i am going to follow jesus wherever i am therefore to the young one sitting here and everyone how do you follow jesus consistently and all your life How did Daniel follow God in the Babylonian court for 70 years that's what bible says right 70 years 70 years in the in the world in the babylonian court i mean if you are in jerusalem you have the temple you have the priests you have the sacrifices you have the offerings you have your community you have everything you are in babylon and your own community has let you down going the babylonian way how did he follow jesus Okay we know already about denying yourself you know about picking up your cross but how did you follow how do you practically follow we look at it in one simple decision first he makes in daniel 1:8 he purposed in his heart he would not defile himself he made a decision about purity simple decision but very very important decision in his life if i have to follow jesus i will have to say no to a lot of things which will defile me because my jesus is holy So I am going to say no. The first thing he looked was not vegetables, but meat and wine. The Bible does in the Old Testament does not tell you cannot drink wine, but the problem is both the wine and the meat came from the idols. They were offered to vegetables were not offered to the idols. Meat and wine was offered to the idols, so they were brought from idols. So he said, "Can I leave this out? Can I leave this out? Can I just have vegetables, fruits, whatever, and water?" Can I keep myself pure? That's the first decision he made. First decision. That's the first decision. If you want to follow Jesus, there are decisions we have to take. And the new covenant people have much more reasons to take it because we know who he is and we have the blood which was not available for them. Meaning, even if you are defiled till yesterday, you can start new today because they did not have the blood. We have the blood of Jesus. They had the blood of lambs and goats. We have the blood of Jesus. second thing 
When Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he decided I'm going to kill everybody off, if you don't tell me what my dream is, and everybody was panicking, Daniel intervened. What does Daniel do in Daniel 2? Daniel went to his house, made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. But the first thing you hear about him, this man prays. It may look like a very simple thing. He's very clear about his purity. He's very clear about his prayer life. And he's used to hearing from God answers to his prayer. It's not just a mechanical prayer. He's used. It's absolute confidence. You will get this confidence only when praying and hearing from God is part of your life. When he's thrown into the, the, about the lion's den, what does scripture say in Daniel 6? When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since. Ah, childhood onwards. That was his habit. He prayed three times a day. What is Daniel 9 all about? It's about his prayer life. So what do you see? He is very clear, if I have to follow Jesus, I am choosing purity over everything else. Second, I will pray daily. And I want to pray three times a day. In his case, three times, it's up to us to choose how many times. But he is very clear, this is part of my life. I pray. Third thing, in Daniel 9, 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. So he's got till Jeremiah with him. When Daniel is living, one of the last letters probably in his hands, written so far, starting with Genesis down to, and he's got it, and he reads from Genesis to Jeremiah. Simple thing, simple secret. If you want to follow Jesus, it's very simple. Read your Bible, pray every day, you can follow Jesus. This is not a magic formula. It's very simple. He read his Bible. To him, Genesis to Jeremiah was available, and he read and when he read, he was not reading as a ritual. He was reading to understand what God you are telling. And he read and he understood that 70 years are almost up. He read his Bible. 9.13 scripture says, as it is written in the law of, he also inquired, Lord, why are we here? God says, oh, this is written. Sowing and reaping. Today we talk about sowing and reaping only about making money. We never consider, we never read the word of God and say, oh my God, this is what I am going through because I sowed in the flesh and I am reaping corruption. We never see that. But that's how we saw it. I didn't sin. But that doesn't make any difference. My father sins, my forefather sins, and here am I in Babylon and I have nothing. We knew it would happen. If you sow in the flesh, you will reap corruption. He understood the law. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God. He is saying, you know what? Lord of people, he is saying, have never come to the end of themselves. They are still trying in their own strength to wriggle out of the situation even though they are in Babylon in chains. They have not prayed. That we might turn from iniquities and ah, you have to turn from your iniquities to 
understand his truth. Where there is no turning away, there is no understanding of his truth. So you look at this young man, now an old man in this case, made a very clear decision early in his life. He prayed, he read his word, and he understood the word. He knew his Bible. He didn't just read his Bible, he knew his Bible. And his Bible knew him very well. That was why Daniel was able to follow Jesus all the days of his life. That God was able to open to Daniel about our times. Then told him, as he kept on asking a lot more, but he said, enough Daniel, close the book. You know? We also do it with children. No, no, daddy, one more story, please. One more story, please. He said, enough. Go to sleep now. That's what finally God tells Daniel. Enough. I'm not going to tell you anything more. Enough. Close the box. Now you go. Sleep. And be gathered with your fathers. That's all. What a relationship. For a young teenager. In the middle of pagan Babylon. Think about it. Because we think we need ideal conditions and circumstances to follow Jesus. I'm feeling a little down today. Why? Because worship was dull. I think pastor was very hard from the pulpit today, so I'm not feeling so good. Yeah, no worship team, no preacher, no fellowship, nobody. You don't need any reason to follow Jesus. He's reason enough. So don't come make it complicated to follow Jesus. Decide early for purity. Pray and read your Bible. Daniel had incredible experiences with God. Incredible experiences. But the interesting thing is that he never sought those experiences. He only sought God. And God gave him those experiences. Today people seek experiences, not God. I'm not saying there's anything per se wrong. Oh, there is a meeting. I want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and I want to speak in tongues. That's an experience. On the day of Pentecost, when it happened, they were not seeking something. They were seeking God. They were seeking God. And God found them. The fact they spoke in tongues was because God found them and filled them. He didn't seek any experience. He sought God. He sought God for God's sake and God gave him all those experiences. And Daniel enjoyed being with God. He enjoyed communing with him in prayer. He enjoyed discerning God's will from his word. You know, for us, this is crisis book. Only when crisis comes, we open. Honestly. That's why I'm not boasting. One of the things I constantly say is when I found Christ, I found him in the best time of his life. I never found him in crisis. My crisis started after I found him. The problem is if you are a panic conversion and a crisis conversion, you will only pray and read your Bible when crisis comes. And God knows you so well, he never takes a crisis out of your life saying that. Otherwise, my child will not read and seek me. So walk in crisis. Daniel did not start praying when he reached Babylon. I believe he prayed when he was in Jerusalem. I believe he studied his word when he was in Jerusalem. It was a habit. So for when he he decided to be pure, not in Babylon, he decided to be pure in Jerusalem. So these are decisions that are taken. 
Therefore he did great exploits simply because he knew his Lord. That's what Daniel 11.32 says. It says, Those who do wickedly against the covenant shall corrupt, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. They who know. If you don't know somebody, how do you follow him? How do you follow him? Most difficult situations for a believer. When you are at a very high place, let us say you are in a very high place in Prime Minister Modi's government, very high. We have a gentleman called Mr. Alphonse, so he's there in a high place, Christian talks, all kind of junk. It's a tool that is used by the government to get the Christians on this side. Because he was an ex-priest from the seminary, Jesuit, so he knows how to speak well. But he was here high up in the court. But his enemies tried everything. They couldn't find anything on him. Never ever compromised on his loyalty with God. Never ever. Christians, when they reach high places, they go with the power structure to rise up in the world and they are disloyal to the living God. And they betray their own people. He never did. He was loyal to God. Always. King after king after king. Dispensations change in Babylon. Assyrians comes. Babylonians come. Medes come. Every king comes. New king comes. They destroy the entire leadership. They will say, but Daniel, I want him. I want him. So you will see Daniel is through the 12 chapters of the Bible in different kings. Because they knew this is a man who was true to his God. Not only was he highly esteemed on earth before every king, every king highly esteemed him. The angel Gabriel has something to say, the final word for today. And he said, oh man, greatly beloved, fear not. I want to tell you something about you. What is your report in heaven? You are greatly beloved in heaven. Everybody in heaven knows you. Fear not. Another version will use this term as highly esteemed. Heaven holds you in high esteem. Not only in the Babylonian court, the kings hold you in high esteem. In heaven's court, the king of kings holds you with high esteem. It's an Old Testament man who followed Jesus. Do you see? What's the message of the cross? message of the cross is this. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. And follow me. Our end on earth may not be like this. But that's not the reason we follow him. Not the reason. Don't get all excited and say, ah, if I follow him, I can also become minister in the cabinet. No, that's not what it means. You may end up in prison. But even in prison, I will still follow him. I still follow him because he's the only one worth following. That's the message for this week. The message of the Passion Week is this. He was passionate about us. We are not passionate about him. We are not. And many of you say, think you are too young. Most theologians say he was around 14 years, 15 years when he was taken to Babylon. And most of you sitting here is 15 plus. Most of you probably have more given to you than Daniel was given, what, what was given to Daniel at his age. At least you are born of the spirit. He was not even born of the spirit. 
So age is not a factor. But these decisions are made now. Decisions are made now. And we struggle with self. The struggle is with self. That's why Jesus said, first thing you have to do is what? Pick up your cross and follow me. He said, no. First, deny. Why are you here? Not the ones who were brought, but the ones who came on their own. Why are, why is half the church not here? Do you think all of them are working? No, they're not working. Some of their mothers with small children and all, that's okay. All of them are not working. What's up? In under one hour, Sammy will put it on. I'll sit there, relax with my feet up and listen on WhatsApp. No. Doesn't work. That's if you listen. The more you do it, you're feeding yourself. Your self gets stronger and stronger. The word of God is coming in, but self is getting stronger because you've chosen even to listen to the word by inflating yourself. Because this is the age when you can do a lot of stuff. What we don't realize is there will be a time in our life when God will say, I actually wanted to use you, but I know I cannot use you because you've been feeding yourself all these years. I need somebody who will obey now. That's why I believe. God looked at all these disciples. Yeah, you walked with me three and a half years. Everything I see, all of you. But I also know you made great proclamations, everything, and then you all ran away. And still you are struggling. And he looks at and he says, you know, Saul of Tarsus, you guy, you follow me. And he followed him till the end, never turned back. Unlike the other apostles, never turned back. Had no crisis in his life concerning whom he has to follow. Even Peter struggled with convictions. Going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Paul never, never. Never struggled with those crises. Why? Because he had set his mind. Once he knew Christ, he saw him. Who are you? Jesus of Nazareth. Next question. What will you have me do? It will be told you go. From that day his walk of obedience began. He never stopped. Never stopped. You can do. And Bible says he was a young man. He was not an old man. When Christ found him, he was a young man. Read the Bible very carefully. Very young man. When he died, maybe an old man. Never turn back. So you have to decide. We have to decide each day. I deny myself. I pick up my cross. And I choose to follow me. And how do I choose to follow me? First, I make a decision for purity. Second, I read my Bible. Three, I talk to my God. I listen to him. And I talk to him. I talk to him. I listen to him. And I keep my life Clean so that he can come and be comfortable in my life because he said, you are my house. That's all. Very simple. Very simple. Don't make it complicated. The Bible is a very simple book. And you don't want to obey God, you make it very complicated. If you want to obey God, this is the most simple book in the world. Shall we pray? Father, this evening we just come to you, Lord. Oh, Father, around the world, your people are gathered, Lord. So many places. And in so many places, they have gathered in extreme danger, Lord. Simply to come together and strengthen one another in prayer, in fellowship, in the ministry of the word. Your word says in Hebrews 13, Lord, for those who are prisoners, consider yourself 
bound with them. In our spirit, we join ourselves with them, Lord. We have the freedom, they do not have the freedom. And we pray in this hour, protect them, Lord, protect. Many of them will risk their lives this week to come together as the body of Christ. And secret police and soldiers and spies will be watching them. And I pray, Father, that you will protect them. You will blind seeing eyes. They will not see. And your people will be able to gather, Lord. I'm praying for those who long and don't have the freedom tonight, Lord. Only for them. I pray, Lord, you would manifest yourself to them, Lord. In Korea, in China, all of the Middle East, Afghanistan, Northern Africa, so many parts of the world. If even the sign of the cross was to be seen on their body, they would die. Pray for them, Lord. That you would be with them. You would empower them. You would strengthen them. And you would speak to them. And to us, Lord, as we go back, continue to speak to us. That we may put you ahead of everything else. Seek you, find you, and follow you, Lord. Commit these young ones into the hands, Lord. I pray, Father, they will make their decision soon. Very soon they will make their decision, Lord. Like Daniel did in his teenage. Thank you, thank you, Father. Go before us. And go with us. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.